Hello and welcome to the Beat Picture Podcast. I'm your host, Bidemir Logande. Today on the show, I'll be talking about an app that lets iPhone users know if their device has been compromised and how to remove the threat, if so. Then I'll be talking about the impact of the pandemic on how we understand the potential of misinformation in cyberspace. And then the main segment of the episode, I'll be talking about a new academic study that has exposed the effects of polarizing content on social media. Thank you for your time. Let's get to it. These days, we carry so much data on our smartphones, um, usually gigabytes of personal photos, health data, financial information, confidential business information for those that have um, small businesses, and so on. So this means all that data is potentially up for grabs by skilled and determined threat actors. So now, while the chances of an iPhone being hacked is extremely low, it's still not zero. And the more important data you have on it, the higher the chances are that someone will want to steal all that data from you. So during the pandemic, we saw significant increases in cyber attacks on personal smartphones, social media accounts, specifically for revenge porn, child porn, tax fraud on small business owners, and so on. So today on this episode, I want to talk about an app that can be used for securing iPhones called iVerify. It's only available on Apple devices for now, and um, there are versions for both individuals and organizations. So for individuals, the app is $2.99 to download on the Apple App Store. And for the organization um, version, the enterprise version, it's $3 per user per month. So the links to both of these versions are in the show notes for this episode. So a quick search on Google Play will bring up similar apps available for Android devices. And I might present one of those um, apps on a later episode. That's for the Android devices. So the iVerify app is able to carry out comprehensive device scans and not only spot signs of compromise, but also offer solid step-by-step advice on what to do and how to remove the threats if it detects any threats on your smartphones. The app also provides in-depth protection guidelines, such as how to secure your social media accounts on your phone, how to protect your wireless connection, and how to protect your actual phone from being stolen. The enterprise version of the app allows for centralized administrative controls that actually allow easy onboarding of new devices, um, real-time security telemetry, as well as seeing who has or hasn't gone through the security guides from the app. So the app has been highly recommended by security professionals. I personally use it. And to be clear, I don't have any business relationship with the developers of the app. Like I said, the Android version is expected soon. And a quick search on Google Play would actually show you um, similar devices, similar apps that you can also download and of course, like I always mention, do your real research before you use anything on your phone. This I verify. I don't have any relationship with them. They don't sponsor me. I don't support them. It's just an app that I use personally, and I'm just sharing with my listeners on how they can also um, secure their phones. You don't have to get this I verify. If you see any other app, 
that is even more functional for your purposes. So next up, um, I'll be talking about the impact of the pandemic on how we understand the potential of misinformation. So misinformation exists on a spectrum. On one end is how nation states use it to spread discord, chaos, confusion, and so on in cyberspace. And then on the other hand, um, there's the, the way threat actors use um, activities such as phishing emails to convince their targets to do what they wouldn't normally do. So in a way, you get a phishing email, that in itself is a form of misinformation. The email is basically trying to convince you to do something you wouldn't normally do by presenting you with false information that is specifically designed to make you take action that you wouldn't normally take. So to, to separate this from disinformation. So a lot of people have tried to explain the differences between misinformation and disinformation. Disinformation might mean something you don't know is false, but then you share it with your friend and then it goes on and on and on on social media, for example. However, misinformation is more deliberate. Like I said, nation states use it on social media and so on to maybe influence domestic policy, foreign policy, and so on. Just think of any country in this world. I can guarantee you they've done or used misinformation in one form or the other on social media. So that's to, again, to differentiate it from disinformation. Disinformation basically is something you didn't know was false, but then you shared it for an ex a good example is um, when during COVID last year, a lot of people were sharing herbal remedies that they think or they thought would um, reduce exposure to COVID and so on. So some of those were disinformation. It was basically untrue information, but then people didn't know better. And then they just forwarded all those messages. So it's therefore important that from a cybersecurity perspective, we start to see online scams as forms of misinformation, no different from memes that overstates the threat or opportunity of a trend. So in essence, situational phishing is a key player in the domain of misinformation, where government websites become um, lucrative weapons for threat actors. So for instance, over the past year, We've seen numerous phishing emails crafted in the form of COVID health warnings and vaccine communications. So now public health is a cybersecurity issue and by extension, so is misinformation. So the next thing I have is fake news. So within every piece of misinformation, there's typically a kernel of truth in it. And of course, as we all know, there are several ways that truth can be distorted, such as conflation, satire, impersonation, unchallenged truth, um, and so on. Each of these could very well be the focuses of entire podcasts on their own. So since the explosion of fake news around 2016, it is now more important than ever to study the medium just as much as the message in order to tackle existential threats to global peace. And good places to start with will therefore be the news and information sources that we trust the most, especially how they look and feel to us whenever we consume information from them. Next up I have is um, basically how misinformation is what we don't know. So when we think of misinformation, we usually think that they only exist in publicly accessible mediums like Twitter, Facebook, um, TV broadcast, cable news, advertising, and so on. However, 
Misinformation really thrives within private WhatsApp groups, private Facebook messenger groups, and memes passed around between friends on private instant messages, text messages, social media DMs, and so on. So if social mobilization is crucial to fighting misinformation, then we need to realize that it is in those deep corners of the internet that it is more effective. For instance, the chaos and confusion that surrounded organic and herbal remedies for COVID during the pandemic has shown that misinformation can be literally deadly. So it's therefore an urgent challenge that needs to be addressed seriously. So back in episode 36, I talked about how many people no longer handle online disagreements well, unlike how physical disagreements are more likely to be resolved within a shorter amount of time. In addition, closed groups within um, social networks now make social listening much more harder than ever before. So addressing misinformation on the internet therefore requires a multi-channel effort that has to start with the mainstream social networks before moving to newer ones such as Discord, Parler, BitChute, and the several others that keep popping up every now and then. Um, finally, the vulnerable groups. So for most so- social issues, the poorest and least informed members of society are typically worst affected. One important piece of this puzzle is what I call digital exclusion. And this shouldn't be confused with the lack of access to electronic devices since everyone now has a smartphone anyway. Rather, it refers to the precise amount of internet data on smart devices and how much each user pays for this data. Both of these affect the level of smart services that users can access on their devices. So media literacy in a rapidly changing digital ecosystem with a seemingly infinite number of voices and content types is important to challenge misinformation, not just in the developed world, but also crucially in the developing world. The more mobile data a user has, the more information and sources they have at their disposal to challenge misinformation and diversify the news and information they consume. This advantage is however not ultimate because a deluge of alternative sources can produce even worse similar effects of what is known as information pollution. So basically, these are all the key points of how um, the pandemic and the impacts of the pandemic has affected the way we understand the potential of misinformation, not just the way we understand misinformation, but rather the potential that misinformation has on actually wrecking even more havoc on society. So after the break, I will be going into the main um, main segment of this episode where I look into a new study that has now further exposed the effects of polarizing content on social media engagement. Stay with us.
So last year, the Wall Street Journal reported that Facebook executives allegedly shut down internal research that showed that the platform increased political polarization, and then they declined to make changes that might make that platform less divisive. So in order to provide answers as to why Facebook executives seemed reluctant to reduce polarization on Facebook, I'll be presenting results from a recent study that was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. So the paper, titled Outgroup Animosity Drives Engagement on Social Media, was written by um, Steve Ratcher, who is a PhD candidate at the University of Cambridge in the UK. Um, there's also the co-author Jay Van Bavo, an associate professor in the Department of Psychology at New York University, and also by um, Professor Sander van der Linden, a professor of social psychology at the University of Cambridge. So the paper was submitted for review on November 24, 2020, and was published two weeks ago on June 29, 2021. A link to this paper is in the show notes. So these three researchers analyzed about 2.7 million tweets and Facebook posts from users in the US in order to examine what social media posts that go viral have in common. They specifically looked at political posts, including those by members of Congress or left and right leaning media outlets, and the results they saw were quite glaring. So they found out that most viral posts tended to be about the opposing political party, um, Facebook posts and tweets about the user's opposition party, that is, the outgroup, were shared about twice as often as those about the user's own political group. And the posts about opposition parties um, were almost exclusively negative. In addition, each additional word about the opposing group, for instance, if a Republican posts a, a post and the post contains the word Democrat, leftist, or Biden, so those posts were more associated were, were associated with a 67% increase in social media shares. So posts that contain specific words such as Democrat, leftist, or Biden for a Republican user were more likely to be shared and on average 67% of the time. So these effects were much larger than other factors known to increase sharing, such as negative words like sad or mad, or moral emotional words such as evil or hate. The increase happened whether posts were from Republicans or Democrats, or whether they were shared either through Facebook or Twitter. So in other words, antagonism toward the opposition was much more likely to go viral than praise or pride for one's own political team. Out of six of Facebook's um, possible reactions to a post, similar to how LinkedIn also has reactions to posts, in the researchers' data, the, the emotion, the, um, yeah, the emotion angry, the angry emotion was most commonly used. So this suggests a regularly stoked sense of outrage might be fueling political polarization and animosity. The researchers' findings also reflect the fact that political identities are increasingly being driven by hating the opposition more than loving one's own party. Outgroup hate has also been strongly related to who people vote for rather than in-party love. And in much the same way, the people um, that people hate online 
captures more attention than who they love. So in a March 2021 article, Karen Howe, H-A-O, an American journalist and data scientist, described how Facebook's content recommendation models promote posts, news, and groups to users in an effort to maximize engagement, rewarding extremist content and contributing to increasingly fractured political discourse. Since outgroup animosity is very likely to go viral, a social media business model that tries to keep people engaged so that it can sell advertising ends up rewarding politicians, brands, and hyper-partisan media companies for attacking their enemies. So the link to Karen Howe's article is also in the show notes. So more importantly, with this business model, social media companies will be unlikely to find ways to reduce animosity on their platforms. For instance, in November of last year, the New York Times reported that Facebook declined to make permanent a tweak to its newsfeed algorithm that showed less harmful content in the feed, simply because that tweak reduced the number of times that people opened the Facebook app. Interestingly, such decisions might actually be helping Facebook's bottom line because despite years of controversy, Facebook recently reached a $1 trillion market value. Facebook also recently denied that a problem exists and has come out with an employee playbook of how to respond to accusations that it polarizes discussions online. The talking points of this playbook includes the claim that there is little evidence that Facebook causes polarization, even though a recent controlled experiment found a significant reduction in political polarization when Americans log off Facebook for a month. Facebook has further argued that polarization is not always bad and sometimes leads to positive outcomes, such as the civil rights movement's success in expanding voting rights in the 1960s. Despite that argument, it is quite clear that using algorithms to amplify outgroup hate could damage society and democracy. Such content may increase engagement and boost profits in the short term, but research has shown that most people actually don't want politicians to express out-party animosity. So basically, they want their politicians to respect their offices and observe decorum while representing their constituency, most especially the people who did not vote for them. Furthermore, the storming of the U.S. Congress building, the Capitol, on January 6, 2021, suggests that polarizing rhetoric and misinformation on social media can actually inspire real-world, real-life political violence. Unfortunately, as long as polarizing content is a fundamental part of the social media business model, it is very unlikely that social media platforms will see it as a problem, much less solve it. So that's all I have for today's episode of The Bait Picture. Production, editing, fact-checking, audio engineering, and graphic design were done by yours truly. Believe me, looking there. Please join me again on the next episode as I continue with a deep dive on cybersecurity topics, news, events, and incidents, and the lessons we can all learn from them for robust cyber threat intelligence and awareness in our daily lives. Make sure to subscribe to The Beat Picture on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, Pandora, TuneIn Radio, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Please share the show with anyone you think might benefit from it, and for questions, comments, or any suggestions, please email me at bidemi at thebeatpicture.com. 
You can also get in touch on Twitter at BeatPicture. Please remember to leave a review for the podcast if your platform allows you to do so. Thank you for your time. See you on the next episode. Bye for now.